When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. Hello. Welcome to another quarantine episode of Let's Talk About Myths, Baby where I, your host, Liv, am now devoted to finding the most entertaining stories to tell you all, even if it means revisiting some old heroes, because I need that entertainment. So you guys probably need that entertainment too. It's weird how hard it is to be creative and funny and clever when you're living this very solo life. 
Anyway, I'm not here to complain. We've all got our shit right now, but I am here to explain why I'm continuing on to revisit Theseus. I think last week was another great example of why I'm doing it, though, because just looking into him again taught me that entirely new story of Scylla and Minos, and that's because I'm actually doing some real research this time. Another reason I'm doing it again. I think there's lots of people who don't listen to the end of episodes after I finish the story, and I don't blame you. So instead, before we get into the story, I will ask right up top that you use whatever extra time you may have in this new world to give me a five-star review on iTunes. I say five stars because, well, if you don't think I deserve that many, then instead you can just not rate it at all. Sound good? I want them fives. I would be eternally grateful, especially right now, if you did that. Thank you in advance if you do. And finally, a quick and exciting Patreon update. I'm teaming up with Ryan Stitt of the History of Ancient Greece podcast to watch Disney's Hercules, the TV show on Disney+. Plus. We're going to watch chunks of episodes of the show, starting with the first six, and discuss the show and how they use Greek history and mythology, because let me tell you, they use it wonderfully. Also, the 90s. Good times. Anyway, if you're a patron, stay tuned for that. And if you're considering becoming one, know that that is coming very soon. Anyway, enough rambling, Liv. This is episode 78, Theseus and all the people he killed while taking a walk. Theseus part one. After Scylla causes the downfall of her city, Megara, because of her love for Minos that almost certainly came from a goddess's curse and not a rational human emotions, Minos wins his battle against Megara. But according to some sources, he doesn't head straight back to Crete. Instead, the war against Attica as a whole continues to wage on. Eventually, still hell-bent on defeating Athens for the death of his son Androgios, Minos eventually prays to his father, Zeus. He asks Zeus for help in defeating Athens, and Zeus listens. Minos is his son, after all. You'll remember Europa is Minos's mother from the time Zeus kidnapped and raped her. You remember that age-old tale. Before long, all of Greece is being hit almost constantly with earthquakes, shaking the whole of the region and causing endless damage. This is Zeus's punishment for the death of Androgios, and the oracle tells them as much when the kings of the region assemble in Delphi to ask what they can possibly do to calm the gods and stop the earthquakes. And this is how the Athenians start offering seven boys and seven girls to Crete every nine years to appease and fill the belly of the Minotaur, Asterion, the half-man, half-bull monster hidden away in his labyrinth in Knossos. But more on that later. Before we get into the madness that is the Minotaur and his labyrinth, we must get back to pregnant Ethra in Trozen, left behind by Aegeus, who returned to Athens for the Panathenaic festival, and to continue trying to hold on to his power against his brothers and nephews. Ethra gives birth to a child of Aegeus, or more likely Poseidon, because it seems to me that Aegeus didn't have the best swimmers. But Poseidon lets him have it. Aethra's child is, you guessed it, a boy. Aegeus gets what he'd hoped for, an heir. Aethra names him Theseus, or maybe he wins that name later in Athens, it's unclear. But we will call him Theseus, because what the fuck else would I call him? We all know this man so well. This guy destined to be the hero I forever refer to as the shittiest one. In reading Plutarch's Life of Theseus, I do want to emphasize Theseus's lineage, even ignoring the implication that he could be the son of Poseidon. 
Theseus is, on the one hand, the son of Aegeus, who is descended from the founders of Athens, the original people of that land, Erechtheus, those who began Athens from nothing and were worshipped for it. And on the other side, he's the son of Ethra, a daughter of Pythias, who is descended from Pelops. Pelops is one of the most important figures in the history of the Peloponnese. It's where the peninsula and the mountain range gets its name. Pelops is at least as important as Erechtheus, making Theseus a child of mainland Greece, Attica, where Athens is, and the Peloponnesian Peninsula, where Sparta is. Theseus is, from birth, destined to be super fucking important. While his story didn't necessarily get passed down to us in the same way, he's in the vein of Heracles, in his lasting importance in Greece, but specifically Athens. He is, in a way, their Aeneas. The Athenians placed a similar level of deified importance on Theseus as the Romans did Aeneas. It's too bad. He was such an ass. Aethra's father, Pythias, takes to spreading the rumor that the child is, in fact, the son of Poseidon, just as we guessed. As for Pythias, it's far more thrilling to have a grandson that's the child of a god rather than plain old mortal Aegeus. The truth is trickier. Perhaps he's a little of both. You know Greek mythology. Super weird shit happens in almost all instances of impregnation. While Theseus is growing up in Trozen, he's instructed by the best and lives among the best. It's said that when Theseus is a child, the most famous hero himself, Heracles, visits Trozen. Heracles is actually a cousin of Theseus. Pythias, Theseus's grandfather, is Heracles's uncle. Of course, when a cousin hero like Heracles visits your palace, you hold a feast to rival all other feasts. So Heracles feasted there with Theseus and his family. He'd thrown off his famous lion skin, getting comfortable, and left it tossed over a stool. A group of children from the palace run in, and seeing the lion there, looking very real, if perhaps also quite dead and thin, lose their shit and run from the palace, screaming. All but one child, of course, Theseus, for this anecdote is about proving his bravery. He runs too, but he runs to get an axe from the woodpile and returns, quite ready to attack this lion as a child, defending his palace. Honestly, to me, it sounds like just the beginning of the ego that will become Theseus, but it's meant to express the bravery and heroism that was naturally coursing through this child's veins. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, 
we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Theseus grows up in Trozen, not knowing who his father is, but one can assume, at least hearing the rumors his grandfather is spreading, that it's in fact a god, Poseidon, who is his father. Of course, in this world of mythology, it is one of the highest honors to be a son of a god, especially when the child has a cousin like Heracles, one who's around while he's growing up. Heracles is the epitome of what it can mean if your father is a god. He is Theseus's goals. Theseus grows up in this way, and we can only assume his ego grows larger every day. Until, when he is 16 years old, Theseus is of the age where he should make his first trip to Delphi. This is stated in Robert Graves as though it's something that's just done, to the extent that apparently during this trip, Theseus offers to Apollo his first, quote, manly hair clippings. This isn't something I can find anywhere else, but it's a bit entertaining, so I'm sharing it anyway. Regardless of what he does with his first hair clippings, this is proof that Theseus is old enough to be shown the rock. Yes, it's time. His mother, Ethra, leads Theseus to the rock of great fanciness, where, 16 years prior, Aegeus had hidden a sword and some old shoes. Sandals specifically, and they're not described as old, but you know, context clues— It was a spur of the moment Aegeus wanted to make a point about caring for his future child only if it was, one, a boy, and two, strong enough to lift what I can only assume is a pretty fucking big rock. We'd probably say boulder, because rock doesn't really convey the gravity. Ethra leads Theseus there, and 
Finally, for the first time in 16 years, she tells him the story of how he was born. She tells him who his father is and the instructions he'd left for his son. Move this rock, she says. Are you strong enough to move this rock? Then you're good enough for your father. That's right. Theseus moves the rock. A hero, a true and valiant hero. With the rock moved and the dirty old shoes and sword removed from where they were placed by Aegeus those 16 years ago, Theseus is ready to reach for his destiny. He's to travel to Athens, seeking his father and his rightful place as heir to the throne of Athens. But a hiccup. Theseus spent a little too much time around his cousin, old Heracles, and it's given him both a big head and a lust for the adventure Heracles talks of so often and I can only assume, in such detail. You see, when Theseus is to be sent to Athens to seek Aegeus, his mother Aethra and his grandfather Pythias plan to send him by ship. That's easiest, certainly, not to mention the fastest and safest way to travel. Trozen is on the Peloponnesian Peninsula, quite a ways down. It's a straight shot across the Saronic Gulf to Athens. Ship wouldn't even have to do much navigating, just right across the water. But that would be too easy for Theseus. He's out to prove himself, even if that means making stupid, self-destructive decisions. He wants to be the next Heracles, and in order to become as impressive and famous as Heracles, one must face obstacles. What obstacle is there in sailing a ship across to Athens? None. And that is not good enough for Theseus. Instead, he will travel by land. His mother and grandfather try very hard to convince him otherwise. It's not safe. It's fucking far. Endless arguments that should resonate with Theseus, but his ego is growing faster than his little bits of beard, and he's not down. No, he won't budge. He will travel by land. And let me tell you what that means. It means traveling halfway up the Peloponnesian Peninsula, which is fucking far, and then it means crossing across the Isthmus. You know I love that word, but I can't say it right now. The Isthmus at Corinth. Then it means traveling all the way from Corinth to Athens, about the same distance as Trozen to Corinth. It would take days and days, maybe weeks, to travel on foot. But Theseus is a hero, damn it. So he will do it. Thus, Theseus begins his journey to Athens. As expected right from jump, he's encountering all sorts of people that are translated sometimes as miscreants, basically people causing trouble in one way or another, and whom Theseus can maim or kill and make himself feel like he's reaching Heraclean levels of heroism. According to Plutarch, Theseus set out not to harm anyone, except also to punish those who directed violence towards him. Contradictory, perhaps, but such is Theseus. First, in Apodarus, Theseus encounters Periphetes, who's a troublemaker with a club. Periphetes, it seems, tries to stop Theseus in his journey. And that, oh, that was violence enough! Theseus wrestles away the man's club and, you guessed it, clubs him with it. From then on, Theseus carries with him a club, becoming more and more like the heroic cousin by the hour, just like Heracles. Forever wore his Nemean lion skin as proof for having killed the animal, Theseus carries his club in evidence of the first man he did away with. Plus a bonus is Heracles also had a club. Next, 
on the isthmus, a word again I love, and this time I said it. Theseus encounters another bandit, a troublemaker, a murderer, really, named Sinis. Sinis, you'll definitely remember from the original brief Theseus episode, but I'm telling you again because I love it. So Sinis is a guy who, for absolutely no discernible reason, has taken to killing people he encounters in an incredibly specific and so creative way. They call him the Pine Bender. Why? He bends pines. Sinis takes anybody who might come across his path, and he lashes each end of them to two trees, bending the trees with what I assume must be some kind of insane superhuman strength. He bends the pine trees over, reaching them together, so they're there, you know, bent. And then he ties your arms to one bent tree, your legs to the other, and then he lets go. The trees spring back up, ripping you completely in half and flinging whatever bits rip off in endless directions. Skin, blood, everything flying every which way. I literally just hit my microphone, keeping it in. And why? Truly no idea. What does Theseus do? Well, an eye for an eye, they say. Theseus does to Sinus what he's been doing to whoever happened to come upon him. Again, for a guy who'd like to think he didn't set out specifically for violence, he found it pretty easy to tie this guy to two bent pine trees and then let go. Plutarch is incredibly impressed by this, noting that Theseus was able to use Sinus's tree-bending contraption, for it seems it was a contraption, without any training at all. He used the same murder device to murder the murderer, all with his own natural skill and valor. Oh, Theseus. A king among kings. But Sinis also had a daughter. She, not surprisingly, runs for her dear life when Theseus catches her father and begins to use his own murder contraption on him. Fear not, though. Theseus chases after her and, promising that he will not hurt her or do anything wrong to her at all, she's convinced to leave her hiding place amongst, according to Plutarch, wild asparagus. And Theseus has sex with her. She bears him a child named Melanippus, and then he gives her away to someone else and continues on to Athens. True to Greek mythology and history, this doesn't seem to be treated as Theseus breaking his promise not to do her any harm. He gave her away. So what? She's property, after all. Interestingly, Theseus' story is one of the only ones that proposes this idea that there are just large numbers of truly horrific people just living it up. I don't know, in a forest? Like some sort of troll under a bridge, just waiting for people to wander there so they can brutally kill them for no reason? I'm not saying I don't believe Theseus. I'm just saying it's awfully convenient that he seems to have lived in this very brief time where there were just so many people he comes across that deserve the punishment he was very happy to give them in order to prove his heroism. I mean, even if these people were just out here, like, stealing from people they came across, like, why tie somebody to two different trees in order to steal from them? Just steal from them. The trees are an overkill, I would say. Anyway, though, there are more, lending more credence to this argument of mine. On the borders of Megara, Theseus kills a guy named Skiron. Skiron. Well, Skiron's an interesting guy, too. In the vein of Sinus, but funnier, if you can believe it. It's said that Skiron has a habit of stopping people who pass him by. He'd stick out his feet to the strangers he encountered and, well, he'd have the strangers wash his feet. 
while they're washing his feet, he would kick them off a cliff. What? Another example of a very unrealistic situation that was just conveniently there so that Theseus could feel righteous in killing another person. I mean, one, why would people stop and wash this guy's feet? Did he threaten them in some way? Is this a practice in ancient Greece that I'm not aware of? Washing strangers' feet on the road? And again, why is it only Theseus's world where there exists all these people who are just out there killing random strangers on the road? There are no other stories of this, yet Theseus encounters more than one just on his trip from Trozen to Athens. Truly, I love it about as much as I hate Theseus because the stories are absurd. Most heroes are out here killing Nimian lions or Larnian hydras or Caledonian boars. Not Theseus. He's here killing dudes who use trees to rip people to shreds and kick people off cliffs while they're having their feet washed. I say again, a noble and valiant hero. Next up, a guy with the incredible name of Procrustes. If anyone's going to be a weird bandit on the road killing strangers, it's a guy named Procrustes. Procrustes is creative too, much like our preceding weirdos, Sinus and Skiron. Procrustes, you might remember from our first dive into Theseus, had this iron bed. Sounds innocuous, right? No? I guess not when we're talking about psycho weirdos named Procrustes. Anyway, Procrustes has this iron bed, and the people he comes across and wants to kill, again, because these run rampant in the stories of Theseus, he takes them and puts them on this bed, and he makes them fit. Are you short? Is there extra space at the top of the bed when Procrustes lies you down? No problem. He's got stretchers. He'll stretch the fuck out of you, pulling all your joints out of their sockets in order to make you long enough to fit his bed. Alternatively, are you too tall? He's got a solution for that, too. He'll just cut off whatever's extra. You didn't need your hands and forearms, anyway. Ankles? Who needs them? Not the people who come across Procrustes. You'll see this coming, but Theseus gives old Procrustes a taste of his own medicine. As Edith Hamilton notes, quote, The story does not say which of the two methods was used in his case, but there was not much to choose between them, and in one way or the other, Procrustes' career ended. I just can't stop thinking about the fact that Theseus is the only one who encounters people like this. Like, I'm sure there were bandits, you know, there always were in times like this, like people on the road fucking with shit, stealing your crap, and I'm sure murderers. But the creativity and the volume is what I take issue with. I think Theseus was a sociopathic con man who just killed all these random people in order to make himself seem heroic when he arrived in Athens. Theseus doesn't stop at murdering the murderers, though, either. According to Plutarch, he also has a moment where he thinks to himself, now, if I'm going to be a hero like Heracles, I really shouldn't just be reacting, killing the killers I come across. No, I should be branching out, looking at other forms of heroism. Basically, he's realizing what I already pointed out. Other heroes don't just kill randos they come across. Actually, most of them don't kill many humans at all. Go find a monster. Theseus. So what does he do? He hears of a cow. Yes, a cow. They call her the Chromionian sow. This is just because of where she comes from, but it sounds more ominous. Plutarch notes that the cow is fierce, but there's no information on what this ferocity results in, nor why this creature requires being sought out and killed by Theseus. For this is what he does. He goes... He finds the cow. He kills the cow. 
This is meant to be another example of his heroism. But again, how? Why? Huh? By the end of his journey across southern Greece, Theseus has killed four people who allegedly were murdering people pretty often on the roads between Trozen and Athens. A likely story. And a cow that seems to have done little to nothing wrong. But as we all know, this is just the beginning for Theseus. I mean, all of this happened while he was walking from his hometown to his dad's town. Theseus arrives in Athens, but he doesn't go straight to Aegeus, explaining that he's his son and he's got the dirty old shoes and the sword from under the rock. No, instead, he wants to just bask in his glory for a while. Because, of course, the people of Athens have heard about this new hero who would rid the region of so many miscreants. Now, this is when my theory that Theseus is a lying sociopath does encounter a hiccup. The people of Athens were thrilled he'd done this, so presumably they knew of those troublemakers, Skiron, Procrustes, the whole gang. But then again, they could have just heard about this hero who'd done all these great things. However they learned about Theseus, the people of Athens were thrilled. Who doesn't love a hero, other than the women they inevitably kidnap and or otherwise ruin? The people of Athens are so down to have a hero in town, and one who was headed there specifically... Perhaps he'll be their hero? It's only right that when he gets to town, this new and exciting hero is invited to dinner with the king, Aegeus. Aegeus, though, isn't expecting his son. He lost track of time, you see, and it hadn't occurred to him that, chronologically speaking, it's likely he could be on the lookout now for his child. It was a 50-50 chance it was a boy, so it's not unrealistic to believe this hero, rolling up all impressive and very intentionally headed to Athens from afar, could be his son. But that doesn't make for a good story, so Aegeus doesn't suspect a thing. Instead, he fears that this hero may come to town all impressive and convince the people of Athens that maybe they'd rather he be their king instead of boring old Aegeus. And he can't possibly have that. But you might recall, at this point in the story, Aegeus isn't alone living in Athens. He's married since leaving Aethra, pregnant and Trozen. You might remember his wife, Medea. Oh, nerds, thank you so much for listening. This one was way more fun to record than I was expecting, actually. Uh, I hope you're all holding up. Thank you to everyone who's still listening every week, even without the commute or whatever other habit might have kept you in the show normally. I know I've been dropping off listening to a few podcasts because I'm not out and about or commuting. But cleaning the house is great for podcasts, thank God. And I don't know about you guys, but I am absolutely cleaning my apartment more often because I'm here all the damn time. So many dishes. Why do things get dirtier faster? I miss human normal things. Anyway, I'll be back next week, probably with some more new and retold stories about our mutual enemy, Theseus. He's going to provide us with endless hate entertainment and hopefully more comedy than would come naturally with that boring guy, Aeneas. Sorry, we'll get back to him eventually, but probably when I'm sane again. And I'll be here on Thursday reading you the Iliad as usual. Stay safe and healthy and wash your hands. I am Liv, and I love this shit. 
When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.